Well, good morning to each of you. It's great to have you here today. Uh, I, I don't know if you missed this, but uh, today's Groundhog Day, right? Uh, I, we, we watched it for the first time with my kids. Uh, I mean, I've seen it repeatedly, uh, but uh, yearly maybe. But uh, uh, we watched that Bill Murray classic, Groundhog Day, and, and, and you might feel like we're in that movie um, in the midst of this series, because here we are again. It's like we're on repeat uh, talking about the same difficult subject matter. Um, can I just say that I am glad that you keep coming back, even though this has been difficult. Uh, I, I never took a class in seminary about how to teach the hard stuff. Uh, I never took a class in seminary about how to pray either. <laughs> uh, fascinating, isn't it? And yet, and yet, I am so grateful that so many of you have uh, jumped in and have been uh, praying faithfully, reflecting on the scriptures faithfully for the last, uh, well, almost you know, 32, 33 days now uh, of 2020. And, and you know, despite how challenging this series has been for me, and, and I know for many of you, I have felt a beautiful unity of, of prayer and a heartfelt commitment to our mission as a church in these uh, beginning parts of 2020. Uh, it, you make it a true privilege uh, for me to be your pastor. Um, so I just thank you. Um, and, and if you're new today or you missed the last few weeks, you may have no idea what it is that I'm talking about. Uh, and so let me just briefly give you the short version. Our denomination is really in a crisis uh, over interpretation and application uh, of the Bible as it relates to same-sex marriage and whether or not same-sex sexual activity is always sinful or not. And, and our dealing with these tough questions has gotten so dysfunctional in the broader United Methodist Church that many believe that the best outcome would be some sort of division, some sort of split, so that we can be more mission-focused without that distraction, and so we would just stop fighting with, with one another. Um, in fact, something like that could happen sometime this year, and our leadership team, uh, the, the church council, really felt it was important to bring the entire congregation up to speed uh, through this sermon, <clears throat> excuse me, this sermon series and in our prayer time, uh, as well as a talk back session that we will be having on Wednesday, February 12th, uh, at, starting at 6.30 p.m. during our worship and prayer night. And I want to be faithful to teach the issues at hand in a fair and a compassionate way while still holding fast to our Wesleyan heritage uh, to and commitment to the authority of the scriptures for our practices of faith and life. And in this series so far, I've shared uh, how our biblical worldview is really being challenged by a Western uh, worldview, particularly around topics of sex and the importance of, of our bodies. And I've shared the sexual expressions that the Bible does affirm. Uh, I've called that holy sexuality. And last week, we really wrestled with some of the key Old Testament passages that address same-sex sexual practice. Um, um, and, and to summarize that, I, I believe uh, the Old Testament is, is clear in its disapproval of ma all male-male sexual activity uh, for both participants. And, and I, I believe the New Testament really kind of follows that trend 
and, uh, and in its own way points back to the Old Testament passages to reaffirm that teaching for the church today. Uh, but let's dive into this study for ourselves and ask some of the really difficult questions that come along with these passages. Uh, uh, really questions that are raised by proponents for change in the church's sexual ethic. And, and I hope to represent those questions uh, fairly and well today. You know, there are three primary passages in the New Testament that directly address same-sex sexual practice. And two of them are, are very similar. Uh, those two are 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at, uh, in verse 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Very similar passages. And we'll look at those first, and then spend a little more time on probably the most important passage that we'll study in, uh, in these last couple of weeks, uh, from Romans chapter 1. So let's uh, jump in and start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 9. And please, follow along in your message notes. Every, uh, the most important things are outlined there. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to start at, at verse 8. We know that the law is good, uh, the law being the Old Testament Mosaic law that we studied some of last week. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And it is for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. You know, these, these passages are similar in that they are both uh, written by the Apostle Paul um, and they both include these sin lists, uh, which uh, each include sexual immorality within the list. Uh, the, the Greek word for uh, sexual immorality is the word pornea, uh, a word that we've looked at multiple times in this series. Uh, they also both include um, and men who have sex with men and those practicing homosexuality. Um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, in that passage, uh, that includes two Greek words that uh, are sometimes translated separately in English translations or sometimes lumped together and translated just in, in one way. Uh, but, but it includes these two Greek words, uh, malakoi and arsenokoitai, um, those, those two words. And in the First Timothy passage, it's just the, the latter of those two words, arsenokoitai. 
And for the sake of time and simplicity, I'm really only going to talk about the First Corinthians passage, but what I have to say uh, applies to both. And now, pornea is a blanket statement for sexual immorality. Uh, everyone on all sides of, of the debate around this within the church uh, agree on that. The, the question is, what all is included in pornea, in sexual immorality? Specifically, would a committed monogamous same-sex sexual relationship be considered pornea? Uh, th there are, are several of these sin lists in the New Testament, eight of them to be exact, and they all include pornea. But only these two passages that I just read for you get a little more specific as it relates to same-sex sexual practice. Now, critics of the church's current position bring up uh, worthy thoughts, such as, hey, you know what, Paul's only experience with same-sex sexual behavior were, were bad things, things like temple prostitution or a predatory um, man-boy sex. Um, he didn't have any concept of a committed, loving, monogamous, same-sex sexual relationship. And, and these, are, these are fair questions to bring up, definitely worthy of, of wrestling with. But I, I think the scriptures themselves address both of these questions, namely, in the word that Paul uses that is most oftentimes translated, those who practice sexual uh, homosexuality, uh, it's a word that, uh, it's the word arson okoitai, uh, which if you can't remember that, it's, it's written in your message notes for you to take home and reflect on or Google or something. Um, but, but if he only meant... If Paul only meant predatory sex, he probably would have used a different word. Uh, for instance, he could have used the Greek word uh, pederastes, uh, which uh, means uh, 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 pederasty. Uh, hopefully it's a word that you don't come across too often, but that's, that's the word for that predatory man with young boy sex. Instead, the word that Paul uses is actually a word that we think he made up. Uh, he made it up as a compound word combining two other words. Uh, the two other Greek words are the words arson, which means man, and koitai, which means bed. So one could literally translate this as bedders of men. Um, and interestingly enough, these two words are used in both of the Leviticus passages that we looked at last week in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Old Testament that Paul would have known and read. Um, so by using this compound word, using two words that appear uh, specifically together in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which we looked at last week, uh, it's pretty clear that Paul is is pointing to those passages and reaffirming the Old Testament prohibitions for same-sex sexual activity between men, uh, which we looked at in depth last week. Um, and, and in case there's any question, in the 1 Corinthians passage, he also uses the word malakoi. Um, immediately between, in the sin list, between the words for adultery and the arsenokoitai word. Uh, and this word is also kind of a disputed word because it's not used often. Uh, but standard Greek lexicons, which is kind of like a Greek dictionary, 
there are two uh, definitions. Uh, the first is, is being yielding to touch. So when you touch something, it gives a little bit. Um, and also, uh, it can be used meaning the passive partner in a male same-sex relationship. Um, the, the root of the word can also convey soft or effeminate. Um, and given the context here, the most, the most obvious understanding is that this word is somehow relating to a sexual um, immorality of some sort because it lands right in between the words adultery and betters of men. And it seems most likely to indicate the passive partner in a male same-sex sexual encounter. Uh, really re reinforcing that this is not merely a condemnation of predatory or exploitative sex between men. Uh, Paul seems to hold both the active and the passive partner as culpable, uh, as did the Leviticus chapter 20 passage that we looked at last week. You know, this might be a good place to, to ask and raise a question, a serious question that people raise often. You know, if this, if this same-sex stuff, if this is so important, then why didn't Jesus talk about it? Well, why didn't Jesus address same-sex sexual relationships? And that, that is a fantastic question and one that I, I think is worth uh, addressing for a bit. In fact, proponents for affirming same-sex marriage as a godly good bring up the fact that Jesus never mentions it. Um, and they use that as, as rationale and a reason for a change in the church's historic position. I, I think it's fair to say that Jesus didn't address same-sex sexual relationships because it was a comparatively uncontroversial sin among ancient Jews, uh, whom Jesus was primarily in ministry to. Uh, and his ministry was, was almost uniformly toward Jewish people. Occasionally, he had interactions with non-Jewish people. Uh, but, you know, Jesus, when addressing sin uh, amongst the Jewish culture, he is always raising idolatry. He's regularly raising religious hypocrisy, and he's, he's regularly raises greed. And I think he does so because those were the common sins in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. J Jesus didn't talk about uh, several of the other sins in the Leviticus chapter 18 list that we briefly looked at uh, last week, week either. Uh, he didn't bring those up either. Uh, not because they weren't important, but because they weren't common. And, and everyone who Jesus was in ministry to and with agreed that incest and bestiality were, were out of bounds. No one thought to bring up same-sex sexual behavior because the entire early Jewish community already agreed and considered it as unholy. But when Jesus did bring up sexual issues, and he did uh, quite regularly uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he brought it up uh, multiple times. Uh, for instance, uh, when, when Jesus did bring it up, he always raised the bar, always. Uh, for example, divorce. He, Jesus didn't lower the bar on divorce. He didn't make it easier. He actually raised the bar 
on divorce. Uh, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Uh, when, when talking about lust in one's heart, Jesus equated lust in one's heart as actually adultery itself um, in the eyes of God. Jesus always raised the bar on sexual issues. He never lowered it. Now, Paul, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul, he, uh, his primary ministry was not to Jewish people, but was to people outside of the Jewish community. So he was compelled to readdress these foundational sexual holiness standards within the early church. He had to talk about it because the, the, their, their culture was, was very, very different. But he, nev he never did so in a way that treated same-sex sexual behavior as any worse than any other kind of sexual immorality. In fact, some have asked why we as a church are making such a big deal out of same-sex sexual activity when there are so many more important things that we could be addressing. And the answer to that question is, is, is simply that, th you know, this is the issue uh, facing our broader United Methodist Church. I, I certainly didn't choose it. Um, I, I'm, I'm really just teaching in response to the conflict presently facing our broader culture and church. Um, I, I believe that the scriptures indicate that same-sex sexual activity is just one of many aspects of sexual immorality. We're not focusing on those now because that's not the United Methodist dilemma. Um, I think we'll see that same-sex sexual activity is just one of many sinful actions coming out of uh, from a biblical worldview, that deep-rooted sin nature that, that resides in each of us. Um, and I think we'll see that as we look at this next passage from Romans chapter 1. Uh, really, the most important passage that I think we'll look at in this study. And I'll work through uh, this entire section, although same-sex sexual practice is only mentioned really in two verses. Uh, I want you to see the context of this. Um, starting with Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, um, understand that just before this passage, uh, Paul shared that the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been revealed and, to everyone, and we receive it by faith. Uh, whether we're Jewish or not, that all people, this is gospel, the good news of Jesus is available to all, we receive it by faith. And, and then he begins a two and a half chapter section uh, uh, talking about the depth of humanity's problem. Re remember our biblical worldview, uh, the problem, the fall? Uh, Paul talks about the effects of our sin nature 
and how that destroys God's image in us. Uh, that is the, what this entire section is about. Uh, and he, he goes on. He says, although uh, they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Here, here Paul says that humanity exchanged the glory of worship of God for the foolishness of idolatry, uh, worshiping lesser things. Um, and as a result, God, God just said, okay, you can have what you want and gave them over to the desires of their hearts. Uh, and Paul kind of articulates that in this way of saying that they degraded their bodies uh, with sexual impurity. And, and we know this to be contrary to God's uh, good design and desire because we are embodied beings who bear the image of God. Uh, but Paul goes on. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural desire, uh, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, one with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, after exchanging the worship of God, they, they now exchange the truth of God for a lie and turned their worship to created things. He says, as a result, God gave them over even to further depravity, symbolized here by their turning away from God's order and design and creation. Paul is suggesting that same-sex sexual practice is an example of what happens in our hearts when we rebel against God. And, and this passage stands out as different from the other passages about same-sex sexual practice in several ways. And this is why I think it makes this passage the most important one of the bunch. Uh, first, uh, and, and I had some questions from folks last week uh, saying, hey, so the Old Testament only condemns male-male sexual activity. Um, and yes, that's right. But this is the first time that female same-sex sexual practice is addressed. Um, but besides, and besides now, uh, that now including all same-sex sexuality, this removes really any allusion to the possi possibility that Paul only understood predatory kinds of same-sex sexual activity. Um, uh, secondly, Paul speaks to their lust for one another indicating that these were mutual and consensual acts. Uh, this is significant because it addresses the common objections that those in favor of affirming uh, within the church same-sex uh, marriage uh, bring up that, that, hey, Paul only understood predatory same-sex sexual activity and, and that he didn't understand the mutuality of same-sex sexual relationships uh, because those he wasn't familiar with. Um, and this passage seems to address 
both of those common questions. And, and thirdly, and most importantly, Paul's discourse here is general. Um, he's not speaking to any one particular group of people. Um, he's talking about humanity overall, uh, suggesting that the depravity that he speaks about uh, in, in this passage doesn't just apply to one group of people at one time or one city or one church, that it applies to everyone, to all cultures for all time. This is not a teaching directed at any one church or any one city. Paul is talking about everyone. More on that in a little bit. You may also find it compelling that Paul, in this entire passage, uh, reflects and alludes to our biblical worldview, uh, the, the creation and the fall specifically. Um, he references the creation of the world in verse 20. And in verse 25, and 23, I'm sorry, he references the birds and the animals and the reptiles, uh, literally in the Greek, that is creeping things, which in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1, uh, creeping things, uh, the same word is used to describe part of God's creation. Uh, it, he references, Paul does, the creator himself in verse 25. Uh, the language that Paul uses for lies um, in uh, verse 25, and then shame in verse 27, um, also mirror uh, the, the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 3, uh, talking about the fall. Uh, so, so, when Paul speaks about female and male in verses 25 and 26, he's drawing us back, just with the language that he chooses, he's drawing us back to God's original design and creation and showing how humanity has become so broken by sin that we've exchanged God's good creation, his truth, for a lie. We've gone against God's natural order in creation. Now, those who interpret this passage differently suggest that in this passage, when Paul talks about one's nature, um, that that actually refers to someone's sexual orientation. So uh, the argument goes, if someone goes against that orientation, then that would be sinful. Um, and, and they say, Paul, Paul didn't grasp that. He didn't, he, he didn't understand orientation the way that we do now. Uh, a couple of questions uh, a couple of responses to that line of reasoning, uh, and please know that much, much more could be said, but just in, in kind of on the high end, uh, we, we see that through Paul's language, he is clearly referring back to creation in these verses. Um, anyone who understands the original language, uh, and, and Paul's, a, you know, it's, he's making a direct connection uh, to creation. In, and, and in creation where God created male and female, Paul is referring to the way that God intended things to be in creation, before the fall, before sin entered the equation. This is very similar to what Jesus did uh, a couple weeks ago when we looked at when he spoke about marriage, the way it was intended to be from creation, before the effects of sin and the fall. Paul describes the desires for same-sex behavior as shameful lust. And he gives no qualification for how ingrained into our disposition those desires are. Um, uh, secondly, th there's an awful lot of evidence from Greek and Roman, in the Greek and Roman world that uh, outside the Bible, 
which Paul was, was very familiar with the Greek and Roman world. He ministered within the Greek and Roman world very educatedly. Uh, uh, that, that the Greek and Roman world had uh, several writings that described same-sex sexual activity as being really ingrained in, in particular people, what we today might call an orientation. Uh, so to suggest that if Paul only knew about sexual orientation the way that we understand it now, that, that he might think differently about what he wrote it just seems unlikely, especially given what he writes next in verse, starting in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Having ignored the knowledge of God, God gave them completely over to their, their evil and depraved mind. The fall has had complete effect on humanity and, has and humanity is now filled with every, every kind of wickedness under the sun. I mean, that is a long list and I think covers all the bases. Uh, and, and then this last verse that I read is enough to give me as a pastor significant pause and, and great fear of God. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Friends, right here, along with some other passages that seem to hold those who teach God's word to a higher standard. This is why I give my all and do my absolute best to share the truth of God's word with you on a week-to-week -week basis. I cannot simply turn a blind eye when a growing and growing segment of people in the broader church want to call good what from my best interpretation of God's word God's word clearly indicates isn't. I, I cannot in good conscience affirm something that from a biblical standpoint leads people further from God. Now, let me be 100% clear here. That doesn't mean that I can't love people who sin. Heavens no. I love all y'all uh, despite your sin. Uh, God, I hope that you love me despite my sin. No, we... Here's, we can't, we can love each other in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. Don't let anyone ever tell you that if you don't affirm someone's sexual activities that you can't truly love and embrace them. That is, that is a warped logic. And it is meant, it's rhetoric meant to create divisiveness. Uh, on the other side of things, 
People who sin sexually are not completely evil people. Any more than any one of us is. Uh, Although I believe that the Bible indicates that same-sex sexual activity is wrong, it does not mean that sexually active gay or lesbian people or or straight people, for that matter, who aren't married, um, it doesn't mean that, that they can't reflect an awful lot of God's good image in their lives. I have met numerous people who identify as gay or lesbian who are amazing people. In some cases, they may be more moral than me in any number of ways. But the implication of what the Bible teaches does mean that as someone entrusted to teach and preach the word of God to people and to point out what it means to follow Jesus according to the scriptures, then I cannot affirm same-sex sexual practice. And next week, as we conclude this series, I'm going to get real practical about exactly what that means for us at Troy United Methodist Church as long as I'm the spiritual shepherd here. Um, What we will do and what we won't do. Um, How we will respond to all people uh, how we will minister in, in a world that is full of, uh, full of brokenness. And, and just, just one more thing before we conclude today. You know, some people have called the passages that we've studied this week and last week, uh, they've actually referred to them as the clobber passages. Uh, maybe you've seen this. Uh, uh, because uh, they, they have been used historically throughout the church to clobber um, the LGBTQ community. And I'm not denying that that hasn't taken place. I, I know that it ha- I know I've seen it happen, and, and I condemn that. Um, but I want to be clear about something. Paul, Paul, in writing this chapter of, of Romans, uh, he wasn't out to clobber gay people. He was out to clobber all people. <laughs> really? When you read the next couple of chapters in this section of the book of Romans, you find that despite the fact that we are all depraved people, that God is kind to us. And chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And we also read in the next chapter that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. I would add there's no difference between gay and straight people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You know, if our study over the last few weeks has you feeling good about yourself, um, you know, kind of just, you're sitting quietly, just kind of smiling inside because, wow, your pastor uh, uh, is affirming what you've always believed in your heart, that same-sex sexual activity is wrong. Uh, If that's the way you're sitting, you're sitting comfortably, you have missed the point. You have missed Paul's point. You've missed the Bible's point. None of us should be comfortable because we are all sinners. We we should all be so ashamed of our sin that we turn to God and receive his grace. And when we do so, we should, gosh, our disposition should be one of unending gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. That he saved us. That he wants to transform us to reflect the image of God in our lives. In, In short, our disposition should be one of, of, of great humility as we pursue a holy life that reflects God's image 
in us. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself now, though. That's, that's some of next week's sermon. Uh, but regardless, that, that humble and holy disposition is what I pray that we, that we each have before God and before one another. I mean, how can we not as we approach the table of Jesus? Who taking bread broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And taking the cup said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Every time you drink it, remember me. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and juice? Lord, would you make them become for us the, a powerful, powerful symbol of your body broken for us and your blood shed for us that we might become a reflection of that for this world, your body broken for this world as, as people redeemed by your blood. Lord, would you make us one with you and one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until, Jesus, you come again in final victory. And we celebrate around your heavenly banquet table. All honor and glory are yours, almighty God, both now and forever. Amen. Now, those who